0: you're listening to the ticker podcast from ir magazine a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations direct from our central london studio here's your host rory havelock
1: this week on the 50th edition of the Ticker podcast we've got ceos versus analysts investors versus mifid and iros versus quarterly reporting Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. It's a weekly look at the top stories and headlines from around the world of investor relations. It's a doozy this week, our 50th show. And I'm joined this week by Tim Heumann, Garnet Roach and condice de Petit as is tradition. Hello. 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 And our first story this week concerns a Frankfurter Frackard, a German AGM. Police were called to luxury car maker Daimler's recent meeting as two shareholders started a row about sausages served at the company's buffet. Uh, the free food at the company's AGMs has been long been one of shareholders' favourite perks, uh, particularly in Germany, but Daimler could not have predicted events even as the luxury car maker announced a record dividend of €3.25 a share. The row broke out when one man repeatedly went to the buffet and began wrapping up several sausages to take home despite there being a limited supply. A female shareholder then intervened to tick him off, accusing him of being too greedy. And resu- nein, das
2: ist meine
1: <laughs> <laughs> there was apparently a shouting match and the authorities were called. Um, the sausages in question were Seiten Wirtschler from the carmaker's home state of Baden Württemberg. Um, Daimler provided some 12,500 sausages for about 5,500 shareholders who attended the meeting, so just over two per person. Uh, Daimler's board chairman Manfred Bischoff faced several Shareholder questions at the meeting, but in response to this incident, only confirmed it. Uh, He said, We had to call the police to settle the matter. We either need more sausages or we get rid of them altogether. A Daimler spokeswoman said it was a verbal altercation and the police were called to calm matters after the female shareholder said she wanted to file a complaint for slander and did so. Um, I think my favourite thing about this story was some of the headlines it produced. Sa- sausage Buffet Row was a pretty simple one. Police called to detain Sausage Hogger, another. But personally, I don't understand why people weren't calling it the worst AGM ever. Surely that's the one you got to go oh, for? Yeah. I, did, I, did I did see Larry. that on Twitter,
3: yeah. Okay, yeah
1: that was amazing, Connie, you found that on Twitter for us. It was one of my favourite ever stories. Yeah, we're always featured. on
3: the lookout for um, comedy events at AGMs. I think a, a sausage fight is <laughs> It's up there. It was a
2: female shareholder's name, Conchita Wurst. Nice. <laughs> oh.
1: I re- I remember a very similar story, I think quite soon after I started at IR magazine, about someone who just waved a sausage at a chairman's face at an AGM. And I can't remember the specifics, but it was definitely in Germany again. So clearly, yeah. There's
2: something about Germany and sausages, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're going to move on from shareholders versus sausages to CEOs versus analysts, as we teased earlier. And Garner has been looking at how the two interact when it comes to upgrades and downgrades. That's CEOs and analysts, not shareholders and sausages.
3: Yeah, I have. Um, I've been having a look at some um, quite interesting research that examines how the reputation of a CEO affects the impact of a, gra- of a downgrade or an upgrade by different types of analysts. Um, the study, conducted by Stephen Bovey of Texas A&M University, Scott Graffin of the University of Georgia, and Richard Gentry of the University of Mississippi, really takes a look at the romance of leadership. So leadership is obviously big business. Um, US companies reportedly spend $14 billion a year teaching it. Um, that's from a study from Burson by Deloitte. And while the idea of a star CEO is nothing new, the researchers wanted to look at how the reputation of a top CEO compares to the power of a star analyst.
1: And how do they go about researching this? Well,
3: they They took corporate, financial and market information compiled over a 13-year period um, and studied around 19,500 downgrades and 17,400 upgrades, ranging from strong buy to strong sell. They then looked at the impact of these upgrades and downgrades um, depending on the reputation of the CEO and the reputation of the analyst.
1: And how exactly did they determine whether a CEO or an analyst was a star, to quote them?
3: With the CEOs, the study authors assessed reputation by looking at the number of leadership awards um, bestowed on a chief executive over the previous five years by seven different business magazines. Star analysts were then identified through their selection to one of the all-American teams published each year by Institutional Investor Magazine, a group that constitutes around 17% of analysts in total, according to the authors.
1: And in this battle between star CEOs and star analysts, who actually wins?
3: It's the analysts, actually, oh. which is actually a bit of a surprise for the researchers. Um, I spoke to Stephen about the impact of reputation on downgrades and upgrades.
0: When we began the study, initially we were expecting to see that CEO reputation would have a bigger effect. To be honest, we expected that CEO reputation would be have a stronger ability to buffer the negative effect of an analyst downgrade. However, when we ran the models and plotted them, what we saw was that essentially, CEO reputation has almost no effect when star analysts are downgrading your firm. CEO reputation did have a big buffering effect when regular analysts downgraded the firms, but it did not protect against star analysts downgrades at all. And that was surprising to us. Another surprising finding was how little effect overall firm reputation had. And when we first ran our models, we thought that firm reputation would have a bigger effect overall on protecting firms from these downgrades but what we realized is that firm reputation is just a very general and sort of nebulous source of reputation it comes from lots of different activities and when a firm is downgraded by a star analyst that is a very specific action made based on the context of their exact future performance and so this broad or diffuse reputation does not really protect against that kind of change in the firm's status. And so it does not have a very strong effect overall on a firm's ability to withstand downgrades, especially when those downgrades have been made by star analysts.
3: What it comes down to, he says, is the way that multiple sources of reputation actually interact rather than individual ideas of reputation.
0: I think the key finding from this paper is that, one, that multiple reputations can all have an influence in one setting. So often in prior work on reputation we look at one source of reputation and what the effect is. But in this setting, as in multiple settings, there are multiple sources of reputation that should all potentially affect an observer or a a party like an an investor at the same time. And here we see that when they interact often it's one type of reputation that someone is paying attention to. Reputation in, in essence is just a mechanism that allows people to Um, shortcut the information they have to gather. So I use reputation because it allows me to make quick decisions about how good a firm is or is not in a given area. And so in, in a situation like this when something is happening, a firm is being downgraded or upgraded and there's multiple sources of reputation, it looks to us like people rely on one source of information primarily and that reputation wins out.
1: So does that mean that ideas around the importance of reputation don't really matter then? Is that what he's saying?
0: No.
3: um, Stephen says that despite the findings, reputation does still matter. But companies should be aware of the different ways that investors might evaluate that reputation and its importance in any given situation.
0: I think companies can take away from this research the fact that reputation does matter. Again, we see that CEO reputation and firm reputation do have a strong effect when just a regular analyst upgrades or downgrades your firm. But the other thing they should take away is that reputation, it looks to us like it only matters in specific situations. So reputation is gonna be most important when a third party like a customer or an investor doesn't have other sources of information that they can rely on to help make their decision.
1: Well, speaking about investors making decisions, um, we're going to move on to another topic uh, that investors will be soon evaluating fully. Um, and it's gone its favourite. It's MIFID 2. Uh, Condice, you've spoken to one investor who's made up their mind about it already.
2: Yes, yeah, so we all know the uh, investment community is pretty anxious about the, the upcoming changes brought by MIFID 2. But there's one UK asset manager who apparently has it all sorted and um, has come forward to say they will no longer be billing their clients for research as part of transaction costs.
1: My word. And who is this uh, courageous, avant-gardist, trendsetter, trailblazer?
2: Woodford Asset Management, which is based in Oxford, is the first in Europe to announce it will be paying for research directly out of pocket. And uh, in addition, the fund house will give a, a breakdown of the fees they charge their clients, including detailed research, execution and commission costs. And that's uh, something else the new regulation will soon be requiring. Woodford CEO Craig Newman said in a press release, quote, Research costs are a function of our role, and we believe it is only right that Woodford, not our investors, pay for it. Only by knowing all the costs will investors be able to make a considered judgment on whether they're getting value from their fund manager or not. So what's interesting is that the majority of asset managers have taken uh, the opposite stance. They say they wouldn't spend a dime on uh, external research and would be relying on their own analyst recommendations. Uh, So we'll see if other European fund houses will be following Whizfer's example.
1: Oh, so despite this atmosphere of everyone seemingly waiting for each other to make up their minds, there's also been a breakthrough announcement from uh, the lawmakers this week as well.
2: Yes, also in the news this week was the announcement that uh, the European Commission had published the MIFID II Delegated Acts Relating to Research Only 10 months late.
1: That's pretty good by their standards, I think.
2: Pretty good. Engage has done a survey of asset managers and IR teams in Europe, and apparently 46% of institutions have already started MIFID 2 implementation, with a further 23% saying they will soon start. So, um, en attendant Godot, uh, well, Godot is getting closer and closer, I would say.
1: <laughs> and those on the service provider side are kind of starting quite a few initiatives in in, in this vein, is that right?
2: Yes, well, Phoenix IR, which runs the uh, Corporate Access Network, a platform enabling direct contact between investors and issuers, and Research Pool, an independent research portal, are teaming up to, quote, offer the investment community the first dig- digital solution combining equity research and corporate access. Will corporates and investors actually be using those types of products? That's the question.
1: And Garnet, what's the answer?
3: Well, I'm sure we'll see a few more um, new initiatives coming out as MIFID 2 gets closer and closer ticking down the days in the calendar already (laughs) i actually spoke to adrian rustling um earlier this week from phoenix ir um and he he mentioned to me that they've had since they launched the corporate access network they've had fifty-five thousand requests come through so i don't know what the outcome of those requests are but people obviously there is obviously some interest around using these kinds of new platforms so interesting to keep an eye on
1: and we will do, absolutely, on the tick of the home of Mifid2 News. Uh, but Tim, you've been looking at another, another topic which has at least IROs um, sharing their opinions at the moment. It's our monthly poll on the I- IR magazine website, I think.
4: Yes, the results are in from the latest poll that people can fill in on our website. Um, this, this month, we chose to look at the issue of quarterly reporting, which we've had a couple of articles on recently. and um, We had an article in the spring edition on changes in Europe because Europe has just relaxed its rules around quarterly reporting. And then we have an article coming up in the summer edition looking at whether that could ever happen in the US, which is quite unlikely, but I think worth posing the question.
1: I think one of the quotes that came from the US Investor Perception Study this year was, it'd be like not seeing your children more than once a year.
4: A lot of the people that we tried to get to talk about it in the US actually refused to comment. So I don't know whether that means they don't have an opinion or whether they just can't comprehend the uh, (laughs) thought of not having quarterly reporting. But anyway, so our survey asked the question, uh, should listed companies be required to report four times a year? the results are pretty conclusive. Over 60% of respondents said, yes, they think companies should report four times a year. What I think is interesting here is that the majority of people using IRmagazine.com are going to be corporates, uh, people who work in IR, maybe senior management and so on. And so this is the company saying that they are happy to keep reporting four times a year and they actually think it's a good idea. Because often it's these questions opposed to investors and other market participants. Uh, A sizable minority, about 30%, said that uh, they don't agree that companies should have to report four times a year. I should add that results were based on 66 responses. Not a huge survey, but still an interesting uh, look, a uh, quick insight into how the corporate community feels about this issue.
1: And if people wanted to take the next poll, uh, where would they find it and what are we, what are we asking them this, this month?
4: Well, the poll can be found on um, article pages on the website. So click on an article to view the article and then have a look at the right-hand column and scroll down and you'll find our monthly poll. This month, we're looking at the very um, uncontroversial question of who would you prefer to be the next US president? And we've listed the Democratic and Republican nominees. And so, yeah, IR people can have their say about who they'd like to see in the White House at the end of the year.
2: Arnold Schwarzenegger.
4: <laughs> the
1: IRos choice.
3: It's quite interesting as well that um, obviously our readers are from you know, all over the world. So it's not just going to be the view from the US, although I think we have quite a lot of um, US IROs. It'll be interesting to see globally who... People want to be the next US president.
4: Yes, and, and it tends to be the, the democratic or the more left-leaning politicians that may do badly in the US sometimes, but then are much more popular outside the US. Or even, you know, he's not that left-leaning, but obviously Barack Obama, his, his approval ratings are much higher outside of the US than they are inside.
1: And I believe, Tim, you've actually just come straight off the phone with some more of America's administrators, but on the IR side more than the, the actual administration of the, com- the country.
4: Yes, I, I had the opportunity to talk with Jim Kudahy, the uh, president and CEO of NERI yesterday, which was really interesting because he's gearing up for NERI's annual conference at the moment, which is the uh, the biggest IR conference in uh, in the world. This year it's happening at the start of June in San Diego. And he gave me a few pointers as to what the conference is going to be like this year.
1: So what are, what are the hot topics he's expecting to feel? Questions about
4: well, seeing as we were talking about politics, I think politics is going to be a very big talking point. Uh, Jim pointed out to me that the California primary is going to take place during the conference on the Tuesday, and California delivers a huge number of delegates for whoever wins it. And so, in particular, I think for the Republican race, it's one where, for example, if Donald Trump won California that could be decisive in terms of his campaign to win the Republican nomination outright. So I think a lot of the uh, chat around the conference and during the sessions will naturally focus on on political matters as well as other things. I think certification is going to be a big topic as well. I know we've talked about that a bit on the pod. Uh, Niri had its first examinations for its new certification. And so there's going to be some uh, elements around that at the conference. They're also just going to take the 10 core competencies that make up the certification and plan some content around that ...at the conference so people can get a feel for the different areas that they need to learn about if they want to take the uh, qualification.
1: And hopefully there'll also be some news about where they're going to be offering the certification other than uh, testing centres in America... ...because I think the plan is to roll it out across the world eventually.
4: Mm, no, it'll be very interesting to hear to hear more about their plans in that area. And then the final thing Jim mentioned is that I asked him if there's any kind of theme for the conference... And he said, you know, they were focusing on four broad tracks of IR practice, but in terms of a theme running through it, they're going to take advantage of the San Diego location and actually have a bit of a Top Gun theme
1: to their IR conference this year.
4: I'm not entirely sure how they're going to factor that into their their
1: various events, but it'll be interesting to see. Does that mean um, we're going to be treated to IROs, beach volleyball tournaments and, dare I say, communal showers afterwards?
4: Well, I guess all is to be revealed
1: exciting I was
3: going to ask about um, what kind of fun activities and after hours events will be happening but I feel like I don't need to now. <laughs>
1: you've got a full picture yeah we've got it covered well obviously you can find out more information on the Neri website including hopefully the full program of uh, Top Gun related events going to be taking place there it's also a good time to mention our European awards coming up soon they are, of course, happening on June the 22nd in London. Nominations have just closed for our judged awards, but be sure to keep your eyes tuned at IRmagazine.com because we will be letting you know which, which companies have been successful in their nominations are and going to be up for the awards themselves. Those award categories, of course, include um, Best Use of Multimedia for IR and Best Investor Event. So some good awards there.
2: And The Rising Star.
1: And The Rising Star, of course, who could forget? To find out more, you can go to irmagazine.com forward slash London2016. There'll be all the information as it comes there. And that's all we have time for this week. Thanks, everyone, for coming along and sharing the news with us.
0: Thanks, Laurie. And
1: we'll be back next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.
0: You've been listening to The Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.